In this last chapter on COVID-19 and equity with my colleagues from New York City, the conversation continues with our experiences at the National Museum of African American History and Culture uh, to uh, residential segregation, the invisibility of being black, uh, the birthright to breathe. We talked about a number of different issues, including strategies and for thriving both individually and collectively. And that's why with the museum, you want to start at the top. You want to start yeah. where it's our celebrations, our successes with sports, with entertainment, with all of the wonderful things that we've done in terms of blacksmiths and our uh, generations of ancestors that were able, that were craftspeople. You want to start there first before going down to the I just want to say I was protests that were happening right. from the very beginning. I didn't know about that. I went and spent an entire weekend there. So I had an opportunity to go twice. And mm -hmm. I started initially from the top down and then I started from the bottom up. And so I, I found that very helpful. And um, then there's a meditation room somewhere in between. Right. Mm -hmm. And the cafeteria. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. We have covered a lot of grounds. We have covered a lot. You've talked about COVID-19 and the impact on African-Americans and Black people in this country. Anything else you'd like to add to that? About COVID-19? Uh-huh, and how it impacted the Black community. And, and what struck me, and I don't know if you'll get a chance to talk about this, is the issue of this, this, this regulation and how we address that. As, in therapy, how does that get taken care yeah. of? So one is that I wanted to say that one of the other reasons why we were disproportionately affected is because we are, you know, that it has so much to do. I mean, you were even sharing this before um, Dr. Nicholson Sullivan, when you were sharing um, before about that, depending upon where you live, that then is contingent upon whether or not you can get tested whether or not you are, um, you can be seen by a doctor, uh, whether or not you have to be seen by a telehealth person, that location is really very important. And one of the things that I was really um, reflecting on is that there's been a lot of research that resi the residential segregation impacts African-Americans deeply, not only in terms of housing, but it impacts our opportunities in terms of what school we go to. It impacts in terms of our ability to where we're going to work, where we play, what hospital we're going to go to, um, and, our, um, and what kind of a career we're going to have because residential, residential segregation keeps us confined. And this whole thing with COVID is that we were heavily confined in these small areas, whether or not we're talking about the homeless or whether or not we're talking about nursing homes or incarcerated 
or immigrants who have to live together in these small um, um, housing programs or housing and public African-Americans and public housing, we don't have the opportunity to be able to live where we want to. And that then affects our health care in, in a systemic way. And it also affects our ability to be able to mobilize and move from those from, from those places. Um, I just wanted to, 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 to yeah. share that. One of the ironies, right, is that later this evening, uh, my the town I grew up in, Deerfield, Illinois, I, they're having a um, a meeting to change the name of the of the park. Mitchell Park is the name of it. Mitchell Park was built in Deerfield, Illinois, as in opposition to building affordable housing. So in in the late fifties, Deerfield built this park and then named it after the person that was responsible for basically figuring out how they could legally keep black people out of there for generations. Mm -hmm. And they wrote a book called, but not next door. And, and, you know, and I grew up there. So what that meant, right. And, and exactly what, what Valerie, what you were saying, I mean, Dr. Bryant, what you were saying, like what that meant in terms of my access to education. So I had, I went to a public school that, that is well, that was resourced like a, co a college or university. It had, it had multiple football fields. It had cross country skiing as like a gym opportunity. It had a, an Olympic sized pool. Right. And this was part of what was paid for from the public taxes and then you talk about healthcare and then you talk about my ability to um, move through education systems to even earn a, a doctorate and then and and yet that doesn't protect me from you know what it meant to have a Brooklyn zip code when COVID hit versus what it meant to, to have a Manhattan um, what it meant to work for myself. And so I, I didn't have to like make decisions about caring for my family or, or going to work. What it meant for us in terms of us being able like to put our kid in a private school. And that private school was two weeks ahead of what New York Public Schools was doing in terms of both having a plan for their distance learning as having like trying it out and getting feedback that by the time the mayor of New York said, okay, now we'll close the building. My kiddo had already, they had already already figured out the kinks and got a rhythm that they stuck with for the next three months. Um, what does that mean? Right. So it's all these systemic themes that, and then, and that doesn't even include the interaction in, you know, the interaction that I had, um, and, and the extra level of effort that it takes. So I'm just grateful that I am deeply rooted in multiple communities. And that's how most of us have survived anyway, is, is resting on the knowledge of the community. Say this, do that, knock on this door, ask for that person, don't accept no as an answer, right? But, but that extra effort that was required in the midst of feeling unhealthy or, you know, a, a dear friend of ours died. He went to three different hospitals and they turned him away with active COVID system, symptoms. And you cannot tell me that it is not that in some way related to him being black body and having a Nigerian name, that it took four hospitals before they said, okay, your life matters enough for us to even consider you, you know, uh, taking you seriously. I was told that my, you know, after five providers, I was told that it was just allergy season and it was different provi providers who had come here from the South or other countries that were like, yeah, this is COVID related. But the, but the provider that was based here in New York was like, oh, I think it's allergies. Right. So it, it, it the geography matters. 
race matters, gender matters, age matters, and, and the ways that we're conditioned to always go towards the individual, like even for the Surgeon General to back up off what he was saying and basically tell Black folks that uh, it's about our individual choices that was shaping whether or not you know, we contracted COVID or spread it to our loved ones versus being able to acknowledge the ways in which our systems are fundamentally designed so that black and brown people will always be overrepresented in, in these death rate and in, in death rates and in, in illness rates and in the impact of um, the diagnosis, as well as also having this overfocus on the death side of it. And again, not that it shouldn't be honored, it's gotta be honored, it's gotta be acknowledged. And there's there's still joy and there's still life. Um, but definitely with this, with the systems thing and, and the ways that it's connected back to geography. Um, and, and yeah, and they've also done research and it's shown that black folks were going to the hospitals with a cough and with a fever and they were not getting admitted and they were not given ventilators and they were told to go home. So that's really very, very clear that even with the same symptoms as white folks and white folks at that point, they would give them the test or they would, you know, hospitalize them. And that was not happening with us. And then the other thing that is really hurts my heart, it's, again, it's just so very painful, is that the Center for Disease Control still doesn't have records. And we're not sure that they're ever going to have records in terms of what the race and ethnicity of people who have died and were hospitalized with COVID and that they've been promising for months. And it's just still this conspiracy of silence that repeats itself over and over, generation after generation, that they won't even give us the numbers. And without the numbers, then we're not going to be able to get clear in terms of resources, census, as well as voting. So these things have major repercussions that will impact us for the next 20, 30 years or so, because they won't even, we know that in terms of being able to receive resources and assets, it's driven by data. But if they don't even have the data, because they've lost it, they said a flaw in the system. I don't know what that means, but it's racism. Well, it's systemic racism. That's what a flaw in the system means. Go ahead. No, it's partly the silence and it's the in inability to say, I made a mistake. I don't know. And it's everyone around us. We never asked and it's because of our bias. We didn't think it was important to right. ask in the first place. That is a lot of the reason why the CDC doesn't have that data is because people weren't tracking. Yeah, they weren't tracking because we're not important. And that, and that they still don't think that it's important for them to track. And that there's all these people who are in administrative bureaucratic positions that never thought that that information was important for us because we, we don't count. We're not, we're not important enough. It still speaks to not being seen. And, and you know, and, 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 and it's, it's, it's really quite heartbreaking. And that I think at this point they said like 52%, they, they, they don't have 52% of cases are still missing. 50% of cases are still missing that they don't know what, what, what to, to make of it in terms of African-Americans and the, and the effect on COVID. It's it's both the not being seen and the um, and the centering of whiteness that I I know everything and so if it's not relevant to me it's not relevant right right like right so racism is quite prevalent even in the midst of a pandemic absolutely oh yeah 
Because Absolutely. it's about, at the, at the end of the day, and this is where people are starting to go, like to really, the fact that even social justice or racism and anti-racism wasn't, was seen as something different than human rights, when at, at, at the end of the day, it's all about valuing life. It's all about, you know, I wrote this essay called The Birth, Birthright to Breathe. And the truth of it is we live in a system where there's a fundamental belief that everybody doesn't have the birthright to breathe, that some people have the birthright to breathe and that other people do not and that their lives are in service and, and, just, and they are expendable in order to keep other lives like in place or, or to, to maintain the certain lifestyle or life experience of other people. That's what, but that's what our whole economic system is rooted in. So you were talking about Tulsa earlier. We know that the lynching trail, it was not arbitrary who was lynched. The people who were lynched were the successful business people. That's who was lynched. And it is the centering of whiteness, why there were only 20% of African-Americans that could work remotely and all the rest had to go to work. And all the rest had to go to work with public transportation, with buses and with subways that were not sanitized, with going to work that they were not putting in the parameters for the correct protective equipment for them to do the work that they were trained to do. These things are all systemic racism, that black and brown and immigrant and poor people, we had no choice but to go to work. Whereas this it's a centering of whiteness that many of them, most of them, the majority of them could go to work, whereas we didn't have that choice. So that's all speaks to how racism just really infiltrates every aspect of our lives. And why wouldn't it impact the pandemic? Because it's, you know, it's, it's just a microcosm of everything else in terms of systemic racism. And you can see that, and there were some essays that were written by housekeepers and nannies, right, that their families that they worked for could go to their homes in the Hamptons, and they had to, you know, be, like, it became very clear for them, like, the choice that they had to make, but this, the idea that, like, your job is to keep me comfortable, even if it puts you and your loved ones at risk. And so, exactly what Dr. Bryant was saying, you know, we're seeing that with the postal workers, the grocery stores, there were grocery stores who at the beginning of this didn't want their, their workers wearing protective gear lest it scared the customers, right? So there's all kinds of ways in which it's like water and it just seeps and it's insidious and it just seeps into everything in ways um, seen but mostly unseen and unknown. So... As we wrap this up, I'm wondering, how can we center Black people and people of color moving forward in our own spaces, whether it's in your therapeutic uh, work or whether it's working with human rights? How do we start moving the needle to center Blackness and people of color? I mean, for me, I think it's really important that Black people and people of color um, stay with their awareness and aware, aware of, um, of what their um, possibilities and opportunities can be and recognize where they sit in terms of, um, of racism and recognize what the things that we can do um, in order to advocate for ourselves, despite the fact that you know, we are being seen in, in such a negative way. I think we can be um, creative in terms of recognizing 
uh, our allegiances or our connections with different agencies and to help people to recognize their implicit racism um, and implicit bias, which is really oftentimes, if, you know, I would really suggest that people with their friends, with their family, with coworkers, with everyone that they can come into contact with to at least start to have conversations to help people to understand and, and see what's been happening because racism is invisible to those folks who are not affected and quite visible to us who are affected. But I do think that in terms of implicit uh, bias, that it's important to have these kind of individual group conversations to help people to facilitate their awareness of such. And then we have to attack the policies and the practices of institutions. You know, I, I'm glad to hear that there are many corporations now that are making statements around Black Lives Matter. We just have to be continuous with it and hold them to hold them to what their policies are saying and not forget. Our country has such a history of forgetting and dissociating and disremembering from trauma. Um, and that we're, we're really kind of ahistorical people as Americans. White Americans are ahistorical. They don't think about the past, the present, and the future. We, as African Americans, have a different culture, and we hold all of that together. That's the way we've always been our, in terms of our families and our history. So I think we just really have to hold them to acknowledging how important history has been in terms of our experience. And that they oftentimes want to compare their histories with ours. And we've had 401 years of systematic oppression and racism and that we cannot change the color of our skin. And they can change their name, they can change their appearance, they can do all kinds of things. We don't have that opportunity, but we're due. We've earned the right to be here. And I think it's important for us to continue to give that message. And with whether we are connected up, up with any institutions and organizations, that we need to be able to um, discuss that with the, some of the powers to be. Um, and also, of course, to help them to challenge the implicit uh, racism that um, the majority of Americans have. Nicholson Sullivan? Yeah, this is a great question. I mean, the, the themes that keep coming up for me, well, there's one thing that shows up for me around uh, Barbara Lee. Uh, I just realized that my favorite quotes come from like Bruce Lee and Barbara Lee. So Barbara Lee is the one congressperson that, that stood alone out of what the 535 and voted against the U.S. preemptively attacking after 9-11 and said that it was because a minister in the National Cathedral said, lest we become that which we seek to destroy. 
And I think that that's always part of the challenge in moving forward is how do we move forward in a way that we offer something new, right? Or as Audre Lorde said, you can't destroy the master's house with the master's tools. So that means we have to, to lean in and remember our creativity as, as a people, as black people on the planet, and to, to offer something new. And some of that something new is, you know, is, is remembering um, we have to center our lives, be unapologetic. And that's going to be the ask, right? Like to, to really start to, to lean and choose black liberation because the moment we start to be in these conversations with people in powerful positions around their implicit bias or around inequity, they're going to, we're going to get what we've seen, fragility, tears. Like the ask is going to be to center their discomfort over our, and fear is going to show up for us because we're human. Um, And so remembering that we do have the right to say no, that we have the right to take a stand for our lives and in that stand for our lives, it may be having courageous conversations with our family members, with our employers. It may be leaving a job and creating our own businesses, creating our own registries. I was in a very fascinating and wonderful conversation the other day where people were like, let's get clear. Because oftentimes this conversation gets created, gets talked about as that it's a U.S., this, this racism thing, that's, like, that's you Americans. When the truth of it is, there's a reason there was that statement that the sun number sets on the British kingdom. And it's because they have specialized in this, this colonial mindset. This is, it's all linked. The idea that one, that a group of people, because of their race, their gender, their economic status, their educational status, are inherently less than somebody else. And so to move forward to really start to lean into it's it's my it's my birthright to ask for this it's my birthright to say no to that i am a stand for and then remembering the tools that don't get talked about as often like they're the communities that were built the ancestral practices and rituals i mean that's what saved me when i was having covid symptoms it was it was the community coming back and saying hey get your oregano get your right like coming back to all of the herbal medicine practices and and ways of taking care of ourselves individually and collectively that aren't a part of the quote unquote mainstream or have been co-opted right like theraflu right that's the sort of thing that my grandma would do with some lemons in a pot and some water right so we remembering and and being curious about and being an inquiry around what are the strategies that have sustained us as individuals and collectively throughout these generations? And what does that look like for me in my current context? How can I be a stand for turning towards and naming things versus going into silence? Centering my own well-being, the well-being of my family, the well-being of my community, the knowing of my ancestors, the knowing of my community, um, actively centering that, actively being curious about that, and then actively bringing those practices, those courageous conversations, um, and and sort of moving in us, I said what I said, and, and I trust that we're all going to be all right and even be, a, be better for me saying what I said, doing what I did. And I think that's one of the ways to move forward and move forward in a way that is growing, that is healing, that it centers life, fundamentally centers life um, and and the ease and the grace and what becomes available individually and collectively when we center life and let go of, of these implicit and explicit ideas that anybody's life is, is more, um, more valuable or important than our own.
I mean, I would also say that it's, it is really important for Black folks to be able to center their own Black bodies because, and because oh, through that centering of their own Black bodies, then they're going to figure out and know what they need to do moving forward. But if they're dysregulated, if they are, you know, all over the place and they're, 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 they're not going to be able to know what they need. And so it is really important for us to check in on our nervous system because we can have a lot of thoughts about what we should do that's in our head and it's all cognitive, but that has to trickle down into our bodies, into our legs, into our hands, into our, into our existence and our essence in order for us to be able to move forward in the way that we can be a cohesive and collective group and not, and not lose, and not lose our, our, our mission. We have to center our beingness, not our doingness. So yeah, I appreciate you bringing it back to the body. Who are we being? How are we treating our bodies? Yes. How are we treating each other? That's right. Yeah, I really like that whole part about the nervous system. We don't often think about and talk about and understand how significant that that is, right? Um, and you do a lot of that work. I do a lot of that work. As a matter of fact, I mean, I would say m m during all the COVID, um, I was, that was what I was doing with patients, helping them to center with somatic experience to help them so that they can stay grounded and resource with their body as a way for them to be able to move forward and to do what they need to do. I mean, that's pretty much a lot of what I was doing. Uh, yeah, because a lot, you know, I mean, people can, there's a lot, people can, uh, they're so anxious. They're so anxious with the anxiety, with the feelings that are going on in their nervous system. They can't even think straight. They can't even figure out where to go next. And so in order to be able to move through that, it's important to help people to be centered in their being, in their essence, in, in their bodies, in order to be able to be aware. And then, and then only then will they know how to think what they need to do for themselves. Subtle, subtle practices have huge impact. One of my favorite quotes, like Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, she talks about like if part of the perpetuation of the racism of these structural isms is the disconnection and the privileging of the cognitive over the physical sensations. Right. Because if we were actually in our bodies and in tune with our physical sensations and our emotions and the information that's available, we wouldn't be able to tolerate nor perpetuate the human rights abuses that have been perpetuated throughout time. Mm -hmm. And so those subtle practices, I do a lot of um, energetic I call it the five elements and we move through the five elements in these practices of breathing, of labeling the emotions. What's here? Where do you experience that in the body? And that has to be the place that, um, that starts. Otherwise it's not sustainable and it, and it's not as, um, it's not, it's just not sustainable. <laughs> right. It's not going to hold you, you know, you're going to be chasing one symptom after another. Right. How does one recognize that they're dysregulated? Um, you can know it by the voices in your head, the noise in your head. You can feel it in your body if you're feeling activated or you're feeling like your uh, chest is, is, um, is going fast or your pressure is, is uh, you, you can feel it when you're talking. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all in your body when you know that you're dysregulated. And if you're speaking fast, if you 
your your eyes are kind of um, you can when you can you can tell. But a lot of times people they don't know it at first. You're unaware of it most of the time. But if you're in therapy, then it will help you to recognize when, me? when you are and when you aren't. And, um, and people like the experience when they're regulated. You know, they're like, oh, my God, this is like really cool. And, and um, I like it, too. I like it. <laughs> Let's just say it helps me even as a therapist when I'm with them to be able to, that we're, we're both regulated because then wonderful things can come from that experience, you know, as they're, as they're, then they can, then they can really say what they want to talk about because if not, they're not even sure. They're just talking based on what they think they should be talking about or what their agitation is saying is going on, but they're not speaking from their essence and their being. probably the most common for folks that that I've worked with is sleep disturbance. Can't sleep. That's a sign that that things are are just that, that they're navigating dysregulation, that your sleep patterns uh, either you have difficulty falling asleep or you have difficulty staying asleep. And honestly, again, back to the contextual, there's so much in our context that we don't even think about are not conducive to regulation, regulating our central nervous systems. Most of us haven't learned like some basic, basically like people are very, first of all, I was told it was too woo woo to bring in some of the the body-based work. And then people are surprised that their bodies have the innate capacity to help them rest. And they're surprised or they'll go, oh, that makes perfect sense that if you, you need to stop reading before a certain time of night or turn off the screens or only sleep and have sex in the bed. Like there's there, like a lot of it comes, um, is very, it, it may be challenging at first, it may be difficult at first, and it's actually doable. And it is right there for most people that their sleep is dysregulated uh, or they, they, they're losing a lot of friends <laughs> or they're hearing, they're hearing the same thing from different, from coworkers, from friends and family members. They find themselves constantly irritated or irritable or they are eating in ways like eating more than you, like those are some of the things, the things, the signs and signals, sleeping more or less, eating more or less, irritable or just sort of checked out where you find yourself moving through life like you're physically present um, and mentally elsewhere to the point where people could ask you a, a question about a conversation you just had and you couldn't tell them because you literally weren't there. Like you were physically there, but you were time traveling for a variety of reasons. So those are the things that become openings in a, in a therapy session uh, are like, oh, what's that you said about your sleep? Because sometimes it's said as like an aside, oh yeah, I've had difficulty sleeping. Well, wait a minute. That's actually one of the big signs or signals that something may be, there may be an opportunity to shift. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, I agree with that completely. If you're not sleeping well, then that's going to affect your ability to be awake. 
Um, and you, if you, if you, you know, you're not going to be able to think and have judgment if you, if you haven't slept well. Um, but also some of the symptoms that you were talking about. Sometimes people have difficulty breathing when they're anxious or that their chest hurts or their, their body feels tight and tense. These are all ways that people, well, it shows up in, um, in so much of people that they don't even pay attention to because oftentimes people are so accustomed to feeling a certain way, dysregulated, they're not even aware that they are dysregulated and they're so accustomed to, to suffering and to having that sense of, um, of being disconnected or as I was saying earlier in terms of, in terms of feeling numb they just feel numb and they're just going about life. Like I call it the walking dead, you know, but, um, but the more that you can help people to wake up their body, whether or not you're doing it internally by tracking your body or through exercise, even, you know, just to help move it are all ways to be able to help people to get in touch with their, with all of their senses and sensibilities. And it is not uncommon for people when you start to invite their nervous system to rest for that to feel uncomfortable and scary. If we've gotten stuck, stuck up and on in hyperarousal or stuck down and out in hypoarousal, then to bring, start to bring that nervous system into a more neutral place can be, right? People get comfortable being uncomfortable. And that can actually, I've had, I've had folks say like, that triggers some discomfort, anxiety, fear, worry. Um, and, and so the practice then also becomes how do you make the distinction between something being uncomfortable and something being unsafe? Well, we also say in somatic experience, a little goes a long way so that even you don't want people to feel too uncomfortable. You don't want people to be in a lot of pain. People are already in a lot of pain. So you don't have to, it doesn't, you don't, you, you, you know, is it, I, I will ask them, is it, is it okay? Is it too uncomfortable? If it's too uncomfortable, then I'll come up and do something to help them to feel a little more comfortable so that they can get some more support in order to hold that. Because this has so much to do with helping people to become more resilient and helping the nervous system to become more resilient will help your thoughts and emotions become more resilient. And are you able to do this work, telehealth? Yes. 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 <laughs> yes. 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 The reason I went into polarity was because a friend of mine, I, I call, I was, I will never forget this. I was sitting in Maryland and she pulled over to the side of the road in Ohio. And when we first started the call, she said, can you feel me? And I was like, feel you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure. I can feel you. And then she did something. And I felt, I felt just like this rush of energy move through my body. And I was like, she's like, did you feel that? And I was like, what did you do? Because I'm in Maryland and you're in Ohio. Mm -hmm. But, but the, there's, right, those are, that it's all consistent with, so that's just a longer way of saying yes. Yeah. And, and, and also people yeah. have their okay. own wisdom. So if you trust people's individual capacity to heal and grow and recognize that our job is to collaborate with them accessing what they already know and what they are the internal and external resources that they already have then yes that that also is what makes telehealth um doable and, yeah, and he, the body wants to heal the body wants to heal we're just there to help guide it i mean i had an experience a couple of months ago on zoom that i was working with someone and we were both zooming and all of a sudden the lights went out 
but I was still working. I was still there with her, kind of sharing and doing what I do. And I was like wondering, why did the lights go out? Maybe something's the matter with my computer or whatever. And come, come to, um, come, I find out later, she actually had turned the lights out while we were doing the tracking. But I still was resonating with her enough that I knew what was going on, even though I couldn't see her, which oftentimes even on the telephone as well. So, of course, yeah, we can, if, when, if you're in the resonance. Okay. Wow, we've covered a lot, ladies. <laughs> this was we, fun. We talked about COVID. We talked about its I impact know. on African-Americans in particular. We talked about the killing of Black bodies and how that's resonating for us, both physically, emotionally, psychologically, and the different actions people are taking to grieve and deal with um, coming out of this frozen state during the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. If you had any last words on all that we've discussed, what would you like to share? Hmm. I mean, I think that we are, we're at a special moment in history. And um, I think that it's momentous with everything that's going on that's horrible and terrible that this is also a time that uh, uh, that wonderful things can come out of it. Um, and that I think that it's wonderful that we're receiving so much support and that I think it's important that we continue to be um, consistent and keep going because I think that what happened back in the 60s and 70s, that I think that we got comfortable and I think we sort of let, let it go, at least speaking about my generation. And I think we let the ball drop. And I think that we really do need to support each other and not let the ball drop with this one. And that we've got more support than we've ever had before. And I think that we really do need to um, embrace the support that we have and step up to the table and don't fall back. And um, it's, it's with one of our survival skills is being complicitous because it's the way that we've had to do it. And I think it's important for us to play that edge and not be so complicitous and to advocate for ourselves and say what we mean and what we need and keep it moving. Thanks. Uh, for me, you know, there's a reason I have a tree and to kind of land my eyes on, right? And there's there's research that was recently done where they discovered that that we've been lied to in some ways about trees competing for sunlight. And they started researching trees and they noticed that they stressed one tree. That was the experiment, was to see what would happen if they stressed the tree. And what they found was that the more stress that that tree endured, the deeper it went into its roots, the deeper it connected underneath, beyond the eye with the other trees in the community, trees that it liked and trees that they didn't like. They had some kind of way, it's called the secret life of trees. They had some kind of way of, of measuring affinity and it didn't matter whether the trees liked each other or not. And there's a decomposition thing that happens when trees die, where they still, those nutrients go into the earth to source the roots. And so I think that we are in a time, that's that collaborative, right? It, where we're not asking any individuals to shrink because that has been one way that we've been complicitous. 
is, is, is by shrinking to survive. It's like, no, in order for us to, to thrive as a people, as a community, as a collective, it's requiring us to go deeper into our roots, to be unapologetically who we are and remember our birthright, regardless of what anybody is telling us, to be brave in that. It'll be difficult and it's doable. So it's, I, it, my, my suggestion is to, to do that, to go deeper into roots and to deeper into com- community, deeper into self and the reflection, um, both in terms of like, how's my body doing? How am I responding? Like that whole self reflection, understanding who we are individually, as well as what we bring to the collective, as well as, as, as being able to do the giving and receiving and tap into what becomes available in the collective, because that's honestly, that's how we're able to hold it all. That's how, how we're able to heal and grow is if we, if we do that both and of individual and collective, um, feeling the fear and taking a stand fighting against and fighting for, right? Just as being in that both and being in the individual, being in the collective and being unapologetic about it all is, is how we, I think we will all be able to, to really maximize this moment as, as, as Dr. Brian was saying, this occasion and use it as an opportunity to thrive and to grow and to continue doing that for the generations to come. Thank you. Those were some wonderful last words. I do appreciate having you both here. Thank you very much for inviting us. enjoyed this episode. Our executive producer is Sneha Jara, and original music is produced by Rashad Bobbitt Delta. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time on Inside Out, Outside In.